once again to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we'll look at verse 12 to 16, and then we'll jump over to verse uh, verses 27 through 36. The last couple of Sundays, we've been talking about how Jesus wants to give us Sabbath rest, which we saw that God defines through several stories in the Bible as life, delight, and communion with God. And maybe as we talked about this over the last couple of weeks, you've been wishing that we could experience that Sabbath rest more deeply from each other. Because after all, don't we want to be a church where life, delight, and communion with God in the gospel of Christ radiates out from us like warmth from the sun or invigorates us like a breath of fresh air? That's what we want. But how do we get there? Uh, Jesus has a very pragmatic and powerful answer to that question this morning in what's known as the Sermon on the Plain, which is similar to, but not exactly the same as, the Sermon on the Mount. And here in Luke, Jesus' Sermon on the Plain immediately follows the two Sabbath stories that we looked at for the last couple of weeks. It actually begins with, in those days, which could mean that this happened sort of a little after these two Sabbath events that we looked at, or maybe it even happened in between them. By the way, Luke's point in this sermon is to tell us how to become the kind of community that gives out the Sabbath rest of Jesus. There's a lot of things in this sermon, but I'm only going to talk about one of them, which is Jesus' command to show love to the people that we've been taught to fear and hate and to love the people who have been taught to fear and hate us. And I want to do that for three reasons. The first is Jesus talks about this in detail and for very specific reasons as we're going to see. And so Jesus tells us this is something y'all need to hear throughout history. All of God's people need this word. And the second reason is right now, there are so many voices teaching us unbiblical and unchristlike ways of thinking about people and how to treat people. And no matter how long you've walked with Jesus, it's just hard not to be shaped by this cacophony of unchristlike teaching. And so I think this is a particularly important moment for us to hear again what Jesus calls us to when he commands us to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. And then the third reason is, as I said at the beginning, we all want to be a church that Jesus calls us to be. A shining city on a hill where people can run to and find rest and safety and healing in Jesus. And while that kind of community, of course, will never be perfectly embodied this side of heaven, it can really be embodied. Because conversion is real. And sanctification is real. And holiness is real. And the culture of heaven is real. And Jesus is giving us his gifts really right now by the Spirit. And Jesus tells us how to cultivate and grow and express that culture of eternal life with God here below to each other in the real world. 
and by looking at one of the hardest things there is to do, which is to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us, we can learn how to give out Jesus's grace in all sorts of different kinds of situations. We can learn to be a people who just exude Jesus's Sabbath rest of life and delight and communion with God. And so to learn this, we'll first read the context for the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus decides on who the 12 apostles will be. And then we're going to jump over a few verses to hear Jesus's word to his disciples about how to give the Sabbath rest of love to those who hate you, and even to those, as we'll see, who you might hate. And then we'll close with an observation about how obedience to these commandments over decades actually transformed a relationship of hatred and fear into a relationship of hospitality and mercy and Sabbath rest. So let's read our passage. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. I'll just kind of do the first part of verse 19 there, and then verses 27 through 36. God's word, Luke 6, verse 12. In these days... Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, now skipping over to verse 27, But I say to you, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive... What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, which you have given us to instruct us 
how to look like Christ and express his grace and grow in godliness and in being a community of Sabbath rest. But Father, we know so too too well that unless your spirit is at work in us, uh, your word will be simply a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal and will accomplish nothing. And so Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us, that you would give us ears to hear it, minds to understand it, and hearts to believe it. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and receive and put into practice the word of Jesus. May it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So as you can see, Jesus separating these 12 men from the rest of his disciples is the context for this particular sermon. Uh, A couple of things here. Uh, In verse 17, we're told that at this point there was a great multitude of people uh, along with a whole bunch of disciples gathered around Jesus. So there's hundreds, probably thousands, who need and who want the grace and the Sabbath rest that Jesus is giving out. And Jesus answers that need by choosing these 12 men whose job it will be to learn the grace of God so deeply it becomes almost a part of their DNA, so that these apostles can disciple all of these people into the grace of Jesus after he finishes his work of salvation and ascends back into heaven. Uh, These 12 guys are going to be central. Paul will actually say that they are foundational to getting the church established in a healthy way as God's community of Sabbath rest. And I just want to note briefly that before making his choice, we're told in verse 12 that Jesus spent all night in prayer. For roughly 12 hours, Jesus was talking to and listening to his Father in heaven. And I know that this brings us into a Trinitarian and incarnational mystery. Uh, But let me just say this. In terms of Jesus' humanity, he needed 12 hours of prayer before he made his decision. And if Jesus needs 12 hours of prayer for decisions that are going to affect the future of the people that he loves for a long time, then uh, we can at least say that we probably need to devote some time to prayer when we face big decisions too. Uh, I'm not saying it has to be 12 hours. Maybe it needs to be 20 hours over 20 days. Or maybe 20 hours over 40 days. Maybe it just needs to be 15 minutes. But just notice that this decision, which will become the foundation of the church forever, was made prayerfully by speaking and listening and resting. And we would do well if we can learn to speak in prayer and to listen through the Bible and then to rest and be still as we come to terms with Jesus' guidance. And speaking of coming to terms, there are two people that Jesus chose who everyone around would have been shocked and horrified to see that Jesus put together in the same community. And no, not Judas Iscariot. Uh, We're not going to talk about him today. It's Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Uh, Let me quickly give you an idea of what Jesus and the Father and the Spirit did when they put these two guys together in the church and then made them work together as apostles. So let's start with Matthew. 
Uh, as many of you probably know, Matthew's other name, his Hebrew name was Levi. We actually would meet him earlier in Luke's gospel in chapter 5. And Levi, Matthew, is a tax collector. So here's what that means. Matthew was a Jew who had aligned himself with the Roman conquerors of the Jews. Now, doing that wasn't a sin. It didn't mean that Matthew approved of Rome in any major way. It didn't mean he was corrupt. It didn't mean he had lost his faith or any of the number of sort of negative things people say about Matthew's occupation as a tax collector. Matthew's job as a Roman tax collector is no different in kind than Daniel's job as a Babylonian governor. But, to, but while Matthew's job didn't sort of put him at odds with God, it did put him at odds with some of God's people. A lot of his fellow Jews would have had strong negative feelings about Matthew's chosen occupation. And to help us understand, uh, I have an example that I'm choosing very intentionally, not only because it uh, mirrors the situation really well, but also because it's probably going to bring up some negative emotions in us that we need to introduce to our second text later in the sermon. Here it is. I listened recently to a podcast discussing uh, George Floyd, and they were talking about three of the other officers who are currently on trial for his murder. And one of the officers, whose name is Alex, is an African-American from Minneapolis. The podcasters talked to Alex's friend and Alex's sister. Both his friend and his sister had very negative experiences and views on the police in Minneapolis. And Alex knew this, which is why they were so confused when Alex joined the police force. And they weren't just confused by this, they were angry, right? Alex had connected himself to an organization that they saw and experienced in very negative, physically dangerous ways. And in fact, the rift between Alex and his sister is so great that after what happened to George Floyd, Alex's sister changed her last name so that she wouldn't be associated with her brother. That kind of confusion, anger, dissociation, right? I don't even want you to be in the same uh, sentence as me, is exactly what Matthew would have experienced as a Roman tax collector. See, it wasn't just a government job. To many of his fellow Jews, it was working for and with a very dangerous organization. And, uh, and I'm going to add this too. Uh, not so long ago, I would have heard that story about Alex and his friends, and I would have been filled with anger and disgust and frustration. Um, the more time I've been spending with Jesus, the more I'm learning that the response that Jesus has is sadness. And that when Jesus is described as the man of sorrows, it's partly because he looks around and sees all these broken relationships and he's sad and he wants to heal them. And I hope in our hearts as we heard that just brief story, you think, oh, everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. What about Simon? Simon was a zealot. The text tells us that. Which doesn't mean he cared a lot. Right? For us, zealot means someone who really cares. 
Zealot back in Jesus' day was a name of a theological and political movement that wanted political freedom and theological purity for Israel. There was also a large part of zealotry that believed they could usher in the final kingdom by gaining political freedom and by getting theological purity. And as you have with people who believe they can bring in the kingdom by being free and being pure, most zealots, if not all zealots, used violence to do this. They killed Roman soldiers in what we would today call terrorist attacks, and not with bombs, of course, but with ambushes on the roads and with stabbings in the dark. And, as you tend to have with extremist groups, they, would, they were known for harassing, threatening, intimidating, and sometimes killing their fellow Jews who had aligned themselves with Rome. Zealots could be very dangerous people. So the way that sort of African-Americans in the South feared the KKK and sort of lived under this constant low-level threat of violence and death, that is how Matthew and his fellow Jewish employees of Roman government would have felt about the zealots. Now, I'm confident we can say with 100% certainty that Simon had repented of his violence because Jesus protects his people from violence. He protects them from abusers. So we can assume a level of repentance that would not have put Matthew in physical danger. Still, people don't normally change at the snap of a finger, do they? And undoubtedly, Simon had been discipled and taught to hate the Romans. So you can imagine his response when Jesus says in the next uh, section to the centurion, I have not found faith like this in anyone in Israel. Imagine his response to hear that about a Roman soldier. This guy has more faith than any Jew. And he also had been discipled and taught to hate people like Matthew for years because they are the problem. They are the reason why we do not have heaven on earth now. And Matthew had lived in actual mortal fear of zealots for years. How is Jesus going to bring Sabbath rest to them in the church? How is he going to disciple us into a relationship of love with people that we are afraid of, who have been taught to hate us or who maybe we have tragically been taught to hate ourselves? Isn't it good to see that like Jesus does church in the real world with real people. Jesus has a solution to that good question. And the Sermon on the Plain is part of Jesus' very pragmatic answer to that question. And now maybe you can understand why in verse 20 we're told, Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. See, Jesus isn't looking here at all the people who need him. He's looking at his disciples who he wants to model him to all these people after he ascends into heaven victorious. And he's calling them to mature in giving Sabbath rest to each other so that together they can give it to the world. So he says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. 
Pray for those who abuse you. The way we bring Jesus' Sabbath rest of life, delight, and communion with God is to show love. Love to the people we consider to be our enemies. Simon, love Matthew. Love to the people who hate you and curse you. Matthew, love Simon. Pray for the people who abuse you, which maybe were Matthew's friends and Simon's friends, who can't understand how they could unite themselves to a community that would include someone like that. Let me say a couple more things about the love Jesus calls us to here. Uh, biblical scholars have come to talk about floor laws and ceiling laws. Floor laws set a bare minimum of behavior. They call us not to sink below a certain way of treating other people or relating to God. While ceiling laws are sort of goals that call us to reach for a very high, often ideal form of behavior. I think this section here is a floor law, and here's why. Jesus is not calling us to become friends with people who have hated us or who we're scared of. He doesn't call us to have you know, private conversations with people who threatened us in the past over coffee. Uh, he doesn't even call us to give them the benefit of the doubt and to trust them. In fact, he kind of does the opposite when he calls us to lend without expecting to get anything back. I think this is important. Jesus is not saying that we bring Sabbath rest to people who have hated us or who maybe have tragically been hated by us by forcing them into a false sense of security or intimacy. He doesn't say bring in the kingdom by pretending everything's okay. Uh, fake peace until you make peace. That's not what he says. No, it starts off very slowly, which is say a blessing not a curse. A curse is I hope you die. Or the worst curse imaginable, go to hell. A blessing is I hope you experience the goodness of God. May you experience the freedom of repentance and righteousness and reconciliation. I'm not going to pray for you to die, but I will pray for you to live with God. To give, a, to give a word of blessing, you see, is to give just a little taste of Jesus' Sabbath rest, life, delight, and communion with God. We're called to turn the other cheek when struck. I think this command is often poorly understood as a call to submit to abuse and violence, and it isn't. The context, both here and in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, is how to live in a church community that is trying to follow Jesus, that is not actively a place of deep, profound harm. As a matter of fact, uh, in different contexts, Jesus will tell his disciples very clearly, if they persecute you in one town, flee to the next one. Right? He's not saying just take there and be abused. He's talking in a very specific context of a community where there will be offense, there will be struggle, there will be difficulty. And when you turn the other cheek after someone strikes you, when you turn this one, you're saying, I'm still going to face you. I'm still going to speak with you. I'm not going to walk away from you. I'm committing myself to being in some kind, some level of relationship with you in the church, in Jesus. 
and I will not respond in kind because I want there to be peace between us. Which is a way of committing to Sabbath life and delight and communion with God. Because the Sabbath, as we've seen, is about living together as the community of God and the blessings of God. And by not walking away when we're hurt again, we are saying, I'm committing in Jesus' name to you and to the kind of community Jesus is building here on earth right now. And then after that, we get several commands about loaning without expecting to return. Uh, And all that means is if a person who doesn't like you, or maybe you don't like, reaches out for help and you can give that help, give it and give it generously. But I don't trust them. They aren't trustworthy. And what if I ask them for help and they say no? What if they're just using me? What if it's not reciprocal? Jesus says, I understand. I understand what it's like to be used. I understand what it's like to give good gifts and not have them be reciprocated. Right? Verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. This part is so profound. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. To be sons of the Most High means to be known for acting the way that God does. When the the Bible talks about us being sons of God, it it means a family resemblance. To be a son of somebody is a way of saying, y'all are very much the same. To be a son of the Most High is to be someone who is known for acting the way the Most High acts. How does God act? By giving all sorts of Sabbath rest gifts. He gives life, he gives rest, he gives food, he gives clothing, he gives rain to the just and the unjust. And in Christ, he holds out even more Sabbath rest, doesn't he? Life in Christ through forgiveness through delight in the fellowship of God and in the fellowship of his people, through communion with him forever anchored in the finished work of Jesus. So if you give out a good gift to somebody in the congregation and it isn't returned, it's okay. Because you're just acting like God and giving someone a little bit of Sabbath rest as a good thing to do the way God does. Although I'll add this too, in saying this, Jesus isn't saying that your feelings can't be hurt by not being reciprocated or that can't make you sad. Nobody should rejoice when they get ripped off. That doesn't make any sense. But what he is saying is to give Sabbath rest to people who don't like you is worth the difficult emotions because you're acting like children of God. You're giving out just a little bit of Sabbath rest that Jesus has given to you And that practice makes the church community a place of Sabbath restoration and Sabbath life. You see, this is a a floor in the church of God. Do good to each other. Bless each other. Be generous to each other. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. I know all this is a little heavy, can be a little intimidating. Let me close with this. For a long time, I wondered why Peter, James, and John were Jesus' closest disciples and not the others. Uh, I also wonder why Matthew, who was a tax collector and good with money, wasn't in charge of the money. Uh, I, 
I think I understand a little better now, right? Peter, James, and John were probably some of, if not the most spiritually mature of the disciples. And Matthew wasn't put in charge of the money bag, probably because it would have been too provoking for Simon. And Simon wasn't put in charge of the money bag, probably for the same reason, I would imagine. And I think these group dynamics are good for us to reflect on. I think it's good for us to see that the disciples were not this roaming band of always joyful people who just got along so great. You know, it's not like our lives. It was just happy all the time. It's not what it was. These group dynamics are good for us to reflect on because they show that Jesus didn't miraculously, didn't expect miraculous maturity and instant healing. Well, you're in the church. Enjoy. It's all better now. I mean, yeah, I stabbed your brother, but it's fine, right? We're good. No, he sets people in places they could handle and he gives them time to mature and to grow because as most Christians know, and as all Christians who've walked with Jesus for more than a year know, Jesus tends to take his time when growing us in holiness. His timetable and ours are just not the same. But he does grow us. And you can see that growth in the way Simon is described in verse 15. We read, Simon, who was called the zealot. In Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, Simon is simply Simon the zealot. So to give you an idea, Jesus died and rose again between 30 and 33 AD, somewhere in there. Mark's gospel was probably written around 35 to 40 AD. Matthew's gospel was probably written 45 to 50 AD. Luke's was written 55 to 60 AD. So 44 uh, Mark, 50 for Matthew, 60 for Luke. Why is that important? Well, I'll have to say this. 20 years after Jesus died and rose again, people were still calling Simon, Simon the Zealot. 20 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, but 30 years after, he was a zealot, meaning he's not anymore. His identity has changed. Simon, by this point, had learned to love Romans and people who worked for them in a way that made people drop the title. It no longer fit him. It's who he was. It's not who he is anymore. He learned to love and be generous to them, to forgive, to turn the other cheek, and to commit to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. See, what I see here in Luke, and the way that Luke writes, is 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 deeply hopeful, because by following Christ's command to love his enemies and to do good to those who hated him and who he Hated, he was transformed by the Spirit of God into a person who lives in and gives, gave out the Sabbath rest of Jesus. And the same is true of us, beloved. Faith-filled obedience changed Simon from someone who hated the Romans and who hated Matthew into someone who learned to love the Romans and love Matthew. And now we can take the same thing and apply it to ourselves and apply it to each other. We can apply it to people who walk in who maybe we're scared of. 
We can apply it to people who might be scared of us. What does Jesus want us to do? How does Jesus want us to give out Sabbath rest? To show them love. To bless and not curse. To pray for them. To be generous. When they're in the church, to commit to a relationship with them by turning the other cheek. To be merciful, as our Heavenly Father is merciful. In other words, we get to help them taste and see the Sabbath life and delight in communion with God that we ourselves have received from Jesus, who turned his other cheek in a committed relationship to us, who is merciful to the ungrateful, who blessed and did not curse. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and who gave life to people like us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are actually at work changing us and transforming us into a community of Sabbath rest. Please help us to put your word into practice. Please help us to bless and not to curse, to do good, to turn the other cheek, to help without the expectation of return. Help us to be merciful, even as you are merciful. And as we do this, please transform us more and more into the image of Christ so that all of us can taste your goodness and see the presence of Christ among us. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for the sake of his gospel, which he has given to us. Amen.